We'll hear argument first this morning in case 08998, Hamilton, the Chapter 13 trustee versus Lanning. Mr. Hamilton. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Tenth Circuit and Stephanie Lanning were wrong in ignoring the new Chapter 13 means test contained in the 2005 amendments to the Bankruptcy Code. The amendments to the 2005 Bankruptcy Code were intended to reduce judicial discretion by inserting a formula rather than the judicial discretion that had previously been accorded to judges and to the litigants. Stephanie Lanning fell afoul of the means test because during the first two months of a six-month look-back period, which I'll explain in a moment, she had more income than what she had in the rest of the six-month look-back period. That income was from a buyout from her former employer, Payless, and distorted what her income appeared to be during that six-month period of time. Because of that, the amount which the means test showed that she would be required to pay to her creditors was more than she could actually pay. Which, ab- means, which means what? What is the consequence of that? You concede that uh, on the strict application of, of the six months, she, her, her income is much too high for her possibly to pay the creditors. So what happens to her? What happens to her and what could have happened to her may be two different propositions, uh, Justice Ginsburg. In the first place, there are two parts to that six-month look-back period, which are found in 10110A of the United States Bankruptcy Code. And the statutes, uh, by the way, here are uh, uh, found at uh, pages 83 through 96 of the petition appendix. 10110A has a first part which defines the six-month look-back period as being six months prior to the filing of the date of the petition, actually the end of the month prior to the filing of the petition. Congress's thought was, it, it seems, that that would be more representative of what an individual's actual income would be. There is a second part to that six-month look-back period, which says, essentially, that the debtor can move that six-month look-back period uh, by not filing certain uh, papers with the Court. That's, can you explain that? It seems very odd. It says she can do that if she doesn't do what the statute requires her to do. I mean, she's supposed to file that schedule. She's required, the statute says, to file it. But she gets an advantage if she doesn't do what she's instructed to do? The part of the statute that you're referring to is under uh, 523, and it essentially says that debtor shall file — 521, excuse me — shall file um, certain schedules, and that would include the income and expense schedule, Schedule I and Schedule J. Um, and certainly the Court has the ability under that statute to extend the time or to excuse the performance of, of the debtor in that regard. Uh, so there's nothing incongruous about uh, that wording in the statute. It, what do you do with the contention that the Court is bounded by other requirements such as the uh, timing of the meeting of creditors and the plan confirmation, that that bound, binds the District Court from resetting it Certainly all of those time frames can be moved, uh, Justice Sotomayor. Uh, there isn't, again, the uh, actual timing of the confirmation hearing in a Chapter 13 case may be fluid, although there are certain time limits for the first meeting of creditors and for when the, first, for when the confirmation hearing is held. Uh, they can be extended, just as a confirmation hearing would be in a Chapter 12 or in a Chapter 11 case. So the idea is the second part of 10110A allows the debtor to say, Your Honor, my six-month time frame immediately prior to the filing of the bankruptcy petition is not representative of my income. I would like to have that time frame move, and that time frame would appear to be movable up to the confirmation hearing. Movable, movable to where? What, what would be, you said, th- this time period, the statutory, the strict six-month look back, she has these two extraordinary months. So now she's going to say, Court, please change the period. Change it to what? Anything she wants? No, Your Honor. Uh, that would be up to the Court. It would be discretionary with the Court, as, as the language suggests in the second part of 10110A. Right. Isn't it the case that before the 2005 amendments, bankruptcy courts were recognized as having discretion in calculating projected disposable income to take into account changes in the debtor's income after the, the filing of the plan, and shouldn't we presume that, Congre- that Congress intended to continue essentially the same regime unless Congress provided some clear indication that they wanted to depart from it? 
Certainly prior to the 2005 amendments, uh, your assessment is correct. The Court had the discretion to be able to uh, assess the debtor's situation, use its discretion to determine uh, what income and expenses should be calculated in determining whether or not a debtor was paying his or her uh, best effort under 1325b1. Here, there is a clear formula, and if you read these, there are three, three key statutes that form a triangle in order to, to give me the conclusion that, that I make and that I suggest uh, to Your Honor. Uh, and that is, we start with 1325b1, which is the, uh, the, the statute that brings into play the disposable income and projected disposable income requirements. Disposable income is now uh, defined as current monthly income. Well, it is odd that Congress provided this very detailed formula and, and that they would provide such a detailed formula and then say, but the bankruptcy court can modify that based on uh, a projection. But still we have the word projection, projected, and your interpretation leads to very strange, really absurd results. Isn't that true? And you have to devise some really uh, uh, elaborate escape strategies in order to to, to, to allow a debtor to avoid those very strange results. Respectfully, Justice Alito, I don't agree with the assessment that, uh, of, of, of what you just stated. Essentially, this formula allows the bankruptcy court to move that six-month period of time, not to ignore the formula. The formula is there. The formula defines current monthly income. From the current monthly income, then is subtracted reasonable and necessary expenses. And formally, under the old law, under the 78 Code, those reasonable and necessary expenses contained a few specifics, but largely it was up to the court to determine. But you say that that can be done only if the debtor fails to file a form that the debtor is required to file. Isn't that right? In, in, in under 101.10a, the second part, yes. But I think there are there are some other other uh, avenues for the debtor that are statutory. And what do you do with the situation in which the change that is projected to occur and in fact may be? Uh, almost certain to occur, is one that causes an increase in the debtor's income. Let's say the debtor was unemployed through almost all of the look-back period and then just before the filing of the plan gets a, a job with a good salary. I mean, you would say that the, if you, you just look at the, the, the look-back period, the debtor would be required to pay practically nothing. Now, no, Your Honor, I would not agree, agree with that. Well, what's a creditor to do in that situation? Well, there, there are a couple of avenues. There is a new statutory provision under 1325 a7 that says the plan must be filed in good faith. And, and I'm sorry, the petition must be filed in good faith. 1325 A3 provides that the petition must be filed in good faith. So we still have the good faith analysis that the debtor's actions may be subjected to uh, even after uh, the plan is filed. And that would be, as trustee, the avenue that, that I would approach is that if even though the, the schedule formula may have been complied with, that if there had been a drastic increase in income post-petition, uh, then that, that should be, be accounted for. Why — what commends going through all these machinations, all of these alternative ways of avoiding absurd results? Isn't the answer simply that we just narrow the circumstances in which a court can deviate from the statutory formula? I mean, it's not — even before this change, it wasn't as if district courts could, at whim, change the projected income. They had to have a clear ground to do so. Why is that inadequate to protect the interest that Congress had in creating this new formula for income and expenses? My answer, Justice Sotomayor, is that Congress provided the formula and it's not up to the courts, I suggest, to modify that formula. Part of the there form was a formula before. It was somewhat ambiguous, and that's what led to the more um, defined terms for income and expense. But that says nothing about ch changing the court's power to act in a situation where the formula is clearly not going to work. That was the standard before. Two points, uh, Justice Sotomayor. One is, is that there was no formula before. There was some general guidance that was given in the statute. It's much like the proposition of good faith. Good faith is almost incapable of definition. Yet every circuit in the United States has a laundry list of factors that, that are taken into account for good faith. Here, reasonable and necessary expenses under the old law had a few suggestions as to what needed to be involved with them. Now we have a portion of another part of the triangle 
which is under 707B. But in a sense, that cuts against you. As I was, when I was reading your opening brief, uh, it, it seemed to me the tone was, well, if you accept the respondent's position, Congress did nothing at all. Well, they, they did do something very important. They had a formula for disposable income. The question is, does that formula apply to projected? Can that formula be modified or altered for projected? So it's not as if Congress did nothing. Uh, or it's not as if uh, the amendment accomplishes nothing, even under the respondent's view. It accomplishes something very important. My answer, Justice Kennedy, is that the definition of the word, quote, projected, end of quote, has — there's never been one in the code. That was a term that was in the 1978 code, and it's carried over into the — to the, uh, the present code. How it was applied is vastly different. The dispute under the prior law was over whether or not the Court could take into account changes in circumstances which were likely to occur post-confirmation. And so we had cases like the Anderson versus Satterley case out of the Ninth Circuit and the Midkiff case out of the Tenth Circuit that disagreed as to how that ought to be applied. In the Anderson versus Satterley case, uh, the Chapter 13 trustee requested that the debtor sign essentially a pledge that they would devote their excess income to the plan. And the Anderson court said, wait a minute, there's another statute at, at issue here, and that is 1329. 1329 allows for the modification of the plan after the plan has been confirmed. Prior to the confirmation of the plan, the debtor still has the ability, and this ties in with some of the comments uh, uh, made by Justice Alito, the debtor still has the ability to amend the plan under 1323. So all of these statutes need to be read together to, to show what the result is. Now the question is not whether or not changes should be taken into account for post-confirmation, that may be likely to occur, but whether or not the Court may deviate from the statute where Congress has said, this is how we want you to determine current monthly income, therefore disposable income, and consequently projected Yes, but you've already income. told us that th there could be a deviation through this uh, 101-10-A a sub 2. And why, if that was all that needed to be done, did the trustee recommend, did the trustee say, uh, bankruptcy judge, let's move the period, let's uh, use this provision and we'll get another period that doesn't have those two months with an extraordinary income? No, Justice Ginsburg. And the reason is, is that that, that privilege or, uh, is accorded only to the debtor to move that six-month period. Uh, neither the unsecured creditors nor the trustee have the ability to request that that six-month period be moved. Well, it was, could have been suggested to the debtor. You can accomplish what you want by using this provision. The record is silent as to whether or not that occurred. What, 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 where can you move it? And I, I don't mean it, but this is the same line of inquiry of Justice Ginsburg. Uh, the, uh, what's the, uh, what has to be the ending date for, if you move the — you can't move it any much beyond the date of the, what, the, the hearing? It'd be up to confirmation, but the confirmation hearing could be continued as the court saw fit. The, the review of the determination or the request to move the period is, is what? It would to be, the total discretion of the, uh, of the judge? It appears to be so under the statute, Chief Justice Roberts. So your objection to the fact that the judge has more discretion with respect to defining projected <laughs> disposable, you don't mind the discretion on the other side? No, Your Honor, I believe it, it, the discretion is not in determining the income, only in determining the time period. Right, but the, the only purpose of moving the time period is to change the, the income. That's true. And there are other options that the debtor had available in addition to that that we have referred to as the four options, which would be the debtor could have here just delayed filing the case for a couple of months. These problems would not have occurred. There, there's another discretion that you don't seem to object to. You say that one, one way the debtor can, uh, can get out of, uh, the bind that he's put in by, uh, by, by the, the, the fixing of, uh, uh, the, uh, confirmed plan is simply to move for a revision of the confirmed plan. Absolutely, and, uh, Justice Scalia. Well, what, what constrains the judge? in allowing or not allowing the revision. Doesn't he have the same kind of <coughs> discretion uh, with regard to the revision that you're objecting to with regard to his uh, establishing the payments? Justice Scalia, I don't think so. 1329 has been subject to uh, quite a bit of litigation, but the argument that we make in our reply brief is that 
it would be simply necessary to plug in and plug out whatever the change in circumstance is. So the debtor would be able to say, uh, my wife's income is now gone, so we want to take that out of the formula. But that's, that's the same thing uh, that's, that's being argued here, that, that you start with the, uh, the fixed calculation based on the six months before, and then you have to show that there were some extraordinary circumstances that justify a change. I don't see that there's any difference. There, there may not be, except there's a statutory requirement as to how that is accomplished. And that's where the 10110A subsection 2 comes into play. It's not so much that there is a problem with okay, the, so What your case comes down to is uh, the, the bankruptcy court can do this, but it has to do it by simply revising the plan. Not, not by establishing the plan initially, but by revising it. Not necessarily, Your Honor. Uh, that certainly is one way. Maybe? That, uh, maybe, yes. Depends on the facts of the case. Well, that's a good answer, isn't it? Because this, the, your point would be the statute does not allow that exercise of discretion which, with respect to projected disposable income, but it does in the other areas. Well, again, I, I respectfully disagree, Chief Justice Roberts. 1329. No, I think he's trying to help you. He's trying to help I'm sorry. I didn't hear well, my, my point, and what I thought your point would be, is that uh, the fact that there is exercise of discretion in two different areas is not the problem. The problem is that in one area, the discretion is specifically permitted, and in the other area, projected disposable income, it's not. I agree. But can the plan, <laughs> can the plan be modified based on, can the plan be modified based on something that was known before the plan was confirmed? Uh, that depends on which jurisdiction one would be in, uh, Justice Alito. Uh, what the, the most current example — Well, if it can't, then, then how is this modification remedy going to work? I, I think it should be that, for example, a good example of this would be a uh, debtor is expected two years from now to no longer have to uh, repay a 401k loan. And so one view would be that you ought to take that into account as of that date and figure those calculations, which becomes extremely unwieldy. You're guessing at that point. The debtor may say, well, I may be losing that, but I don't know what my actual circumstances are going to be two years from now. Chapter 13 is a fluid process. Your, your argument is that the, the, the court has to confirm a plan that's really not confirmable because the debtor can't possibly make the payments under the plan, but then has, can turn around immediately and modify the plan so that it does call for payments. No, Your Honor, that is not my argument. And I, well, I thought that uh, — explain it then. Well — what we're saying is, is that this, this plan can't be confirmed as it stands because the debtor would have to be able to make those payments. And the debtor obviously is not capable of making those payments. But it's because she chose the wrong options. If she had chosen the 101 — Let me just stop you there, because then the answer you gave to the Chief and to Justice Scalia is, doesn't fit. She, you cannot — the bankruptcy judge is not going to confirm the plan where she has to pay over $1,000 a month because she could never do that. So you're not going to get that confirmed plan, which could be amended later. Well, I, I, I agree with that. I, I may have misunderstood the question that I was asked, but what I'm saying is that the statute needs to be followed. And if the debtor had followed the statutes here, then the debtor likely could have obtained a confirmed plan. Well, I'm what, doing that what, since time in addition to you, you brought up the 101 uh, solution of she doesn't do what the statute tells her to do, so she's able to move it if the judge agrees. And you said she had other options. What? Yes. Well, the other options, and I've referred to them as, as the four options, and the 101-10A-2 is the, uh, one of those options. As I said, she could have delayed filing the case. There's nothing in the schedules that would indicate that she was filing this bankruptcy under exigent circumstances. There's no foreclosure. There's no repossession. There's no garnishment. There's no lawsuit. So delay would have been impossible. And a debtor is always able to determine the date of the filing of the petition. The second thing that she could have done is file a Chapter 7. And this is the anomaly between Chapter 13 and Chapter 7, is that she would have qualified in all likelihood for a discharge under Chapter 7 because she would have met the special circumstances test in, in 707B. But then the creditors would have been a lot worse off, would they not have been? That's very possible. But it's a formula that Congress sought uh, to, to place into effect, and it's not up but to why me. Would, that's, why would the trustee be urging the possibility of the, the — it would be okay for her to file under Chapter 7, in which case the unsecured creditors would get very little, but it's not okay 
or how to use Chapter 13 with a plan that would give the unsecured creditors um, substantial payment. Here, Justice Ginsburg, the reason is plain and simple, and that was I sought to enforce the rule of law in order to have the courts determine how the rules were supposed to be interpreted. By my view, it seemed like that had she followed the rules, maybe she would have gotten there, but the way she did it, she can't. It's kind of like driving a car. You can't expect that a car is going to perform well if you don't turn the engine on. Can and I, here, she didn't turn the engine on. Can I come back to uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg's question about whether there would ever be the opportunity to uh, adjust the confirmed plan, because, as you say, the plan here would not have been confirmed. But that that isn't the case always. I mean, in many cases, uh, a plan would be confirmed because the uh, the bank the bankrupt could could barely make the payments that it requires, and then uh, when uh, it 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 is clear that because of uh, the extraordinary event in the preceding six months, uh, the bankrupt is, n- is not going to have that, that amount of money, uh, there would be the opportunity to adjust. Maybe not. In, in other words, is, is your response to, uh, to Justice Ginsburg always that it will always be the case that where there would be an adjustment under this theory, there would not have been a confirmation in the first place. If the plan is not confirmable by an analysis of Schedules I and J, which are the income and expense statutes, I'm not going to recommend confirmation, and nor do I think any trustee would. Any events that are in the equation before the date of confirmation would likely be then subject to 1327, the race judicata provisions of Chapter 13. So if the plan is confirmed, say in Stephanie Lanning's case, with these facts known, then she would not be able to come in afterwards and ask for the court to modify under 1329 because that's part of the confirmation order. Uh, The other options that were available, we uh, discussed briefly the ability to file this as a Chapter 7. She also could have uh, converted this case to a Chapter 7 post-petition with the same result, or she could have dismissed this case and refiled. Isn't that, wouldn't that amount to just a, a waste of everybody's time? To dismiss it and then refile it, and then she gets um, a, a time period that, that doesn't. Why? Why not just drop out those two months that are not representative of Be- her income? Because Justice Ginsburg, the statute does not permit that. It's not within the formula, and th- that's the question: is 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 the formula binding or is it not binding? If it is binding, then uh, it's obvious that Congress intended a more rule-bound uh, statute. It got that. It was obvious that it intended to reduce uh, judicial discretion, and the statute seems to accomplish that. But, they, this, but you, you have explained your number one solution for her is this one-on-one route, which is there's lots of discretion in the court. Only in moving the six-month period, uh, Justice Ginsburg. Yes. That would be the only discretion that the statute would appear to accord to the court. Where is that, by the way, the provision that allows them to move the six-month period? It's in 10110A, and it provides that the term current monthly income means the average monthly income from all sources that the debtor receives, or in a joint case, the debtor and the debtor's spouse receive, without regard to whether such income is taxable income, derived during the six-month period, ending on, and then we come to subsections I and little i, or two I. Mm-hmm. And, and those are, that's the disjunct. It's the six-month period prior or some uh, other time frame, and the, the language is important. What it, do you say about cases in which moving the six-month period can't solve the problem? For example, if the, the debtor had uh, good income for many years going back, but then slight, shortly before the filing of the plan loses his or her job, and there's no prospect that the debtor's going to get another job. Or it could be the converse, has very low income for a long period and then right before gets a job. So you're not going to be able to cure those problems by moving the six-month period. What do you do then? Well, uh, uh, Justice Alito, I think I would tie in 1323 with respect to the first proposition, and that is if the debtor's circumstances have markedly changed, then the debtor has the ability to file an amended plan. And that amended plan could ask the court to move that time frame forward to a confirmation hearing that would take into account the drop in income. 
With respect to the second part of your proposition, and that is an increase in income, then I, as Chapter 13 trustee, would have the ability to object to it on the basis of of good faith under uh, uh, either 1325A3 or 1325A7, either the plan or the filing of the case itself. And those were, the filing of the 1325A3 was the primary way in which all of these disputes were resolved before the 1984 amendments, which brought in subsection B to 1325, which uh, introduced the concept of disposable income. File an amended plan and have the court restart the clock when 10110A says only if the debtor has not filed the schedule of current income. If there's been a plan confirmed or a plan proposed, then the income schedule had to have been filed. Those are you don't do one or without the other. Those are two different propositions, Your Honor. One is if the plan is confirmed, one if it is not confirmed. If it is not confirmed, then you are correct. At some point, the trustee and the court are going to want to see Schedule I and J to see what the actual income and expenses are. If the plan has already been confirmed, then the ability to um, change the plan has to be done under 1329, which is the Forget about 1329. I'm going to the situation where um, the plan has been pr- uh, proposed, let's say. Um, the court, if a schedule of income has been filed, then it's without any jurisdiction to change the six-month look-back period, correct? I don't agree with the word jurisdiction, uh, Justice Sotomayor. Well, it can't under 10110. The debtor would certainly have the ability to ask the court to be excused from that requirement, given a change in circumstances. But again, it would be the formula that would be honored, rather than the court substituting judicial discretion. If there- can I ask, yeah, there is one more question. <laughs> can I ask whether 1323, which you've now invoked, does not provide the same kind of discretion to the court that you're objecting to? Uh, what what standards are there for granting or not granting modification of the plan? Is it pretty much up to the judge? No. Uh, I believe, again, the Court is, is bound, uh, uh, Justice Scalia, by the 10110A formula. It's obvious that Congress intended the formula. It wouldn't make much sense to read the statute to have some other formula. Well, then, 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 then <coughs> I mean, look, at you, you're, you're between a rock and a hard place, either — 1323 gets you out of that formula, which is what you've said. It's one way out. Or it isn't. Well, which is it? I haven't said that it gets me out of the formula. It gets me out of the time frame issue, because certainly the statute doesn't take into specific account what happens if the debtor loses a job, say, post-petition. Obviously, example, husband loses the job at Goodyear after the bankruptcy petition is filed. Uh, and I think 1323 is broad enough to allow uh, an amendment, which would involve only moving the time frame. Okay. So uh, any, any amendment has to relate to a period? I believe so, Subsequent to the, the filing. Okay. If there are no other questions, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time, Chief Justice. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Goldstein. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Court, uh, I think, has the party's arguments very well in hand. I think the, the one point that I can helpfully address, and it's, I think, the hardest part of our case, is to address the issue that Justice Alito raised, and that is, is there an anomaly in the fact that in BAPSIPA, Congress added this six-month period, which would suggest, perhaps, that Congress was trying to lock in a particular period that we would look at. And the answer to that question is no, and I want to take you to the relevant statutory provisions. The first, it's going, everything's going to be in the cert petition. I'm going to start in the petition appendix at 91, which is 1325, which is the operative provision here. And 1325b1 tells us that if the trustee or creditor objects, then as of the effective date of the plan, uh, it's only going to be confirmed in subsection B, which is the third full paragraph on page 91 is, is going to control. The plan has to provide that all of the debtors projected disposable income to be received in the applicable commitment period beginning on the date the first payment is due under the plan will be applied to make payments to undersecured creditors under the plan. And the thing to note first about that provision is that it, too, sets a timetable. It's not just projected disposable income, but it's projected disco- disposable income of a very particular type to be received in the applicable commitment period. So unless there's something particularly strange about the definition of disposable income, Congress specified a period that the income is going to be measured in, and that's over the course of the plan. The word project tells us to get a realistic uh, estimation of what that amount of money is going to be. Now, my friend makes the point that disposable income after BAPSIPA is a defined term. The the definition comes in the next paragraph. It's subsection 2, 1325b2. 
For purposes of this subsection, the term disposable income means current monthly income received by the debtor subject to some deductions and then the expenses. So then we have to go to the definition of current monthly income. Current monthly income is in 101. It's at page 83. That's where we get the six-month period. And it tells us that current monthly income is the average monthly income from all sources, so it's very encompassing, without regard to whether such income is taxable income derived during the six-month period. So my friend's argument is that, well, Congress said six months. The answer to that point is a couplefold. First, as was suggested in the first half hour, Congress was addressing a very specific problem there. Before BAPSIPA, courts didn't know what the — didn't agree on what the baseline was for determining someone's income. Some courts would say, all right, you're a Chapter 13 debtor. Right away, I'm going to look at the latest month. Some courts said six months. We have a court in our brief that said four years. So we have to have a starting point to project from. But the second point is that this term, current monthly income, isn't principally a Chapter 13 term at all. So my friend's argument is that Congress stuck this six-month period into Chapter 13, so it would be very anomalous if we could just in effect, he says, we're throwing it out. We're giving the district judge's discretion. It's not quite right. It, the, the place to look is in uh, Section 707, which is two pages later. 707 is a Chapter 7 provision. And my friend started out by saying the problem with our position is that we weren't following the Chapter 7 means test. That, that's the key. This term is really a, a borrowed from Chapter 7. So 707B2A1 is at the beginning of page 85 of the appendix. And so we're in a Chapter 7 case here, and this is the means test. It tells us that in considering under Paragraph 1, so we're trying to figure out if there's a presumption of abuse under Chapter 7, whether the granting of relief would be an abuse of the provisions of this chapter, the Court shall presume abuse exists if the debtor's current monthly income, reduced by the amounts determined under Clauses 2, 3, and 4, those are expense clauses, and multiplied by 60 is not uh, less than a certain amount. So what happened is Congress in BAPSIPA created this presumption of abuse in Chapter 7, and it then borrowed that concept, as my friend pointed out, in Chapter 13. So that six-month that six period has real force in effect in the bankruptcy code in Chapter 7. So it's not like Congress in Chapter 13 fixed a six-month period, which would give, have sort of a gravitational pull. You wouldn't want to toss that out too lightly. Justice Sotomayor, I do agree that we ought to be pretty — we ought to stick to it. It indicates Congress's concern with a six-month period. But it's not like Congress added to Chapter 13 this six-month concept. It added it to Chapter 7, where it's in full force and effect. Can I make one other point about that language, just to repeat it again? That the court you, 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 yes. you, you've, you've lost me. Okay. Where, where is the six months? Sure. It's back. We have to go back two pages. No, I got, I got okay. it there. Sure. Where, I'm sorry. The term is current monthly income. So we're in Chapter 7, so four lines down. The court shall presume abuse exists if the debtor's current monthly income, that's the six month. Current monthly income, that's the six-month period of income. I, I see. Yes. I see, I see. see that, that's mostly where it, it matters. Then Congress borrowed it in Chapter 13, but it didn't get rid of, as was pointed out before, the term presume, uh, projected. It didn't get rid of the, period, the commitment period. But I do want to point out something very particular about this language. That here's the phrase. Current monthly income reduced by the amounts determined under clauses 2, 3, and 4, those are expenses, and multiplied by 60. That's what my friend says the phrase projected disposable income to be received over the, over the applicable commitment period is. Our point is that if Congress intended that mechanical formulation, it would have used the exact words that I've just read from you in Chapter 7, because that's mechanical. Without the word projected? I'm sorry? Without the word projected. That's exactly. They used multiplied. And Congress did that several times in BAPSIPA and before BAPSIPA. When Congress wanted, look, we're going to have a mathematical formula, it used a mathematical formula. Why don't you follow his suggestion and just move the six-month period? Because the statute specifically grants that authority to the judge. Sure. Let me make a few points about that, sir. So I'll again read the language again. So we're on 83. Uh, it says that uh, little two is going to be, it's going to be six months uh, ending on the date on which current income is determined by the court for purposes of this title if the debtor does not file the schedule of current income. A couple of points about that. Justice Alito, you were right. This is a one-way pro-debtor ratchet, right? The creditor and the trustee, if the debtor a month before confirmation gets a new job or their expenses go down. Let's say you had a car, but you know that the car payments are going to be done. Under the trustee's view, then you still get to count the car payments, which are totally pretend, or if you got a much higher-paying job. In fact, in this case, she did get a higher-paying job. Towards the end of the period, she got a raise. And we say that has to be counted, too. We have to have a debtor and creditor-neutral provision. It, it, in a statute that's designed to make sure the debtor pays as much as possible to her creditors, it's very strange to put this entirely in the debtor's hands. Could I ask you this? There, there seems to be at least a 
subtle difference between your position and the government's position. You say that the, the projected disposable income will be different from the disposable income calculated during the look-back period when it is known or virtually certain that there will be differences in income or expenses. And the government says that uh, there's a difference when something is likely to occur in the future. Where do you uh, where do you get from the statute your known or virtually certain differences? The contrast between 1325 and 1329. What I tried to do in my brief, and I have laid it out at the beginning of the argument section. That's where we try and articulate our rule. What we have done is we've looked at the cases. As you pointed out, this is a pre-BEPSIPA practice. Courts have set a pretty high bar, both in terms of the level of certainty and the degree of deviation. And courts have said, I'll give you an example that will illustrate the difference, perhaps. You have times when someone expects to get a raise. They don't know that they're going to get it or they expect to get a promotion. And courts will say, even if that's pretty likely, until you've actually got it, we're not going to count it for purposes of 1325B. Come back under 1329. And we point out in our marriage brief that, in fact, it's not quite on point, but she got a settlement (coughs) post-confirmation here, and under 1329, that money was applied. So, Justice Scalia, there are post-confirmation events. But if you know ahead of time, and this case is a perfect example, we know she's not going to get another buyout from pay less juice source. When it's known or virtually uh, certain, we think that's sufficient. It's uh, akin to Justice Sotomayor's point about, you know, making it hard. Uh, let me make one other point. I, I wanted to finish off my answer to the Chief Justice about 101. Uh, this provision has taken on greater significance in the oral argument and the reply brief of the petitioner. I did want to point out to the Court a provision that's not reproduced in the party's briefs, but if the Court were to go this route, it would want to be aware of, and that's 521I. And 521I tells us that you do have to file the forms at the beginning, uh, and you, or you have to file them within 45 days, but Upon request of the debtor made within 45 days after the date of filing of the petition, the Court may allow the debtor an additional period of not to exceed 45 days. So it does seem to constrain the power of the Bankruptcy Court to shift this period all around. So I've made two points. One is it's a one-way ratchet for the debtor. Second, it's not unlimited. The third is it just doesn't make any sense. Why would Congress design a system that would have all of these machinations? If we agree that Congress want, it seems my friend and I agree that Congress believed that she shouldn't have to make the the payments that would be required under the trustee's reading of projected disposable income. The question is how we get there. The trustee's answer is that you are required by the text. I'm sorry. Congress took this option away. And I think that, as I've explained, the term projected disposable income to be received in the applicable commitment period really is not language that you would ordinarily construe to ignore changes that would Well, I think, I think that's exactly right when you look at the term projected yeah. disposable income. Yeah. But if you look at disposable income yeah. as a defined term yeah. and then add projected, I think it's a different, different, uh, different uh, argument, different kettle of fish. I mean, because uh, particularly in a statute intended to restrict discretion, um, uh, it's a way to do it. You look at it in the abstract, projected disposable income, it doesn't achieve that objective. Uh, and that is exactly, Mr. Chief Justice, why I started with the definition of current monthly income in the six-month period. I agree that it is an important point. It is their strongest argument. My only point is that I have explained, I think, why Congress put the six-month period in for purposes of Chapter 7 and also to have the starting point. If I, to give you an example, take inflation. If we were to define inflation as the amount and the rise in prices over the previous six months, if Congress did that in a statute and then told us to look at projected inflation, we would still not ignore things that will tell us that there are going to be — there's been an oil price spike or an increase in health care costs. It would take a pretty firm, firm period that told us only to look into the past and not look into the future, particularly when the whole point of the statute is to make sure that the money goes into the creditor's hands that the debtor is able to pay. On the point of discretion, I should also say — BAPSIPA as a whole was intended to reduce discretion. And so it's kind of odd to say that the answer to our position is to turn to all of these other discretionary provisions. As what if you, you wanted to achieve your, your friend's result and you had a definition of disposable income and you wanted the Court to, you don't want to say project that forward, what, what word would be more natural? So, saying projected. I, I, would, I would use the language that Congress did in 707. Remember, the current monthly income reduced by the amounts determined under clauses 2, 3, and 4 and multiplied by 60. 
No, that's altering disposable income. I'm at the definition of disposable yes. income. I'm asking, isn't the most natural word to achieve your friend's result to use projected? What other word would you say when they say this is the period you look at and we want you to take it forward? Multiplied. Multiplied. Yes. And Congress did that a bunch of times. Uh, projected, if we try and project something, we try and make the bet, the, and the, everybody agrees on the definitions, they're really, it's not an unju- unusual term. It is, you make your best estimate of the future based on the data you have now. My friend is right. One piece of data we have now is her previous six months' income. Another piece of data is we know that she's not going to have that same income in the future. If there are no further questions. Thank you, counsel. Ms. Harrington? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In bankruptcy, as in many areas of the law, Congress has tried to balance, on the one hand, doing case-specific justice, and on the other hand, ensuring that the statutory scheme is administrable. Now, Congress certainly could have chosen to elevate simplicity over accuracy by telling bankruptcy courts to take a debtor's current disposable income and multiply that number by the number of months in the plan in assessing whether the plan is confirmable. But there are several strong signals in the code, but that is actually not what Congress intended courts to do. But do you think bankruptcy courts are supposed to be economic forecasters? For example, if you, after calculating the, the, the debtor's income during the, the six-month look, the six-month look-back period, should the bankruptcy court said, well, say, well, it's, inflation is projected to be such and such over the term of this plan, so I'm just going to increase it by the amount of inflation or, this person works in a particular industry where, historically, over the last five years or ten years, there's been a three percent increase in salary per year. So I'm going to multiply it by multiply the disposable income figure like that. Certainly not, Justice Alito. Well, why not? You say that the, the bankruptcy court should take into account things that are likely to occur in the future. Well, bankruptcy courts. We're not saying that bankruptcy courts should ever speculate about what might happen in the future. What we're saying is that bankruptcy courts should take into account what they know, in this case, already has happened, but also what they know will happen. Um, and so to give an example of a, of a change that would benefit creditors, um, if a, as was mentioned earlier, if a, if a debtor has secured a higher-paying job just before or just after she files her petition, a court should be able to take into account the fact that her income going forward will be greater than would be reflected in the calculation of her current disposable Well, no, no, no will happen is quite different from likely to happen, and I thought your test was likely to happen. Well, likely to happen based on what you know now. I think it, we haven't suggested a particular burden of proof, I think. I am like, Likely based on what you know. Well, like, that's quite different from you know it will happen. Right. So there was an example mentioned earlier. If, if a debtor is repaying a loan to her 401K program, that's the type of loan that can't be extended t- time-wise. And so she'll keep making those payments, which will be deducted as an expense in the calculation of her current disposable income. But, the, but you know at a certain point she's likely to stop making those payments. Is there a difference between your test and the respondent's test? Um, not according to what I heard Mr. Goldstein say at the argument. Um, yeah. Again, we do not mean to suggest that a court should. His uh, words were known to a virtual certainty, which are likely to happen, is different than likely to happen. Right. And I I think in part it depends on what type of change you're talking about. Um, Again, we would never say that a court should speculate about what should happen. Um, But, for instance, to to take another example on the expense side, if if a debtor, when she proposes her plan, um, owns a second home, a vacation home that's secured by a mortgage, then that secured debt payment is an expense that would be deducted from her income in the calculation of her current disposable income. But if she proposes to surrender that property as a condition of her plan, she will no longer have that debt payment going forward. And so that's the type of so — so it will no longer be an expense going forward. Under petitioner's view, a court would not be able to take into account the fact that that current expense well, — that's, that, that's no — no will happen, that one. That, that is no will happen. But I don't know how you can at one and the same time say courts shall not speculate and then say that the test is likely to happen. Well, again, I mean, to, to, you know, to, to, to look forward and say, is it likely or not likely? That's speculation. I don't know a better definition of speculation, to tell you the truth. Okay. Then we wouldn't — we're not trying to advance that view of likely. Um, and again, in this case, the change has already occurred. So there's no, there's no uncertainty about what her situation is now and what we can project it to be going forward. It seems to me that particularly since you're 
adopting a fairly broad — well, depending on how broad a theory uh, you're adopting of what's projected and what's not, that you're taking into account a lot of things that are more properly taken into account when it comes to whether the plan should be confirmed or not. Well, this is going to happen. What's the situation going to be? What should, you know, the creditors get? What should the debtor get? Uh, there's no reason to kind of shoehorn those into the projected disposable income. Well, except that if a creditor or a trustee objects, then the, the calculation of projected disposable income is one of the conditions of confirmability of the plan. The, the court can't confirm it unless it can. Well, it's, is that I mean, let's say your friend wins up to the point, and somebody else, when it gets to confirmation, can say, well, look, you know, there was this, you know, this big payout before the filing, so don't confirm it. We know she's got all this, uh, all this other money. That, it could do it that way, couldn't it? I'm sorry, if, if she got a higher-paying job just before, is that what you're suggesting? Well, whatever the situation is, can't that be taken into account when it comes to confirmation? Well, it could, except that, um, well, one thing that's important to note that hasn't been brought up is under Section 1325A6, a court is actually, which is the feasibility provision, a court is actually required to think about what is going to happen in the future, whether a debtor is going to be able to repay her creditors. And so it doesn't make very much sense to, on the one hand, require a court to consider what it knows will happen in the future in determining feasibility. And then on the other hand, if there's an objection by the creditor or the trustee and 1325B comes into play, to prohibit a court from considering the same facts it knows about what's going to happen in the future. What if the debtor's a, a waiter, and uh, during the, the last month of the six-month period, because of some change in the economy, the, the waiter's tips have either gone way up or way down? What's the court supposed to do then? Well, I think one purpose of having the six-month look-back period and the calculation of current income um, is exactly to take into account those situations. There are many people who are gainfully employed full-time, but whose, whose income fluctuates over time. And so requiring that courts use the six-month look-back period, I think, gives creditors a better sense of whether the current income figure provided by the debtor is accurate. It reduces the chance um, for strategic filing because it sort of takes some of the significance away of the time of filing. Uh, and so it, it seems fair in that case to, to consider that six-month average in a case where income fluctuates up and down as an accurate um, sense of what the, what the debtor's current income is. And again, in, many, in a significant number of cases, the calculation of a current disposable income will be a good prediction of what the debtor's disposable income will be going forward. How do you d deal with the petitioner's two arguments petitioner makes? One is that on the expense side, Congress provided for special circumstances exceptions, and it didn't on the income side. Well, the special circumstances exception comes in in the calculation of a debtor's current disposable income, but it doesn't tell you what to do in terms of projecting that disposable income. And so you can adjust what you think the current disposable income is based on um, an expense that isn't accounted for in the standard expenses or an expense that is accounted for but is higher than um, is accounted for in those expenses. But again, it doesn't tell you what to do, how to project that number going forward. What about the argument that this was a simple thing? She didn't have to file the plan. She didn't have to file the petition at a time when those two months would be in the six-month look-back. She could have waited. Well, that is certainly true of this debtor, of the respondent in this case. That is not an option available to all debtors, so many of whom are facing foreclosure proceedings or imminent foreclosure proceedings. Delay is simply not an option. And if I could address the uh, Section 10110AA Romanet 2 um, option that the petitioner offers. Um, I think one thing to note is it doesn't give courts the discretion to set any other to just pick any other six-month look-back period. They pick a date and go six months back from whatever that date is. So if the change occurs very soon before the filing of the petition, it makes it very hard for a court to use that provision to change the look-back period, because you'd have to wait six months, essentially, after the filing of the petition to set it back. But again, the biggest problem with using that section as a workaround is that that is an option that is available to debtors, but not to creditors. If a debtor files a Chapter 13 petition along with all of the schedules that are required under Section 521 of the Code, then the debtor has no option for — excuse me, the creditor has no option or the trustee has no option. Well, the, cre the creditor has the option of objecting to confirmation of the plan. They can object to confirmation of the plan, but on what, ba what basis? If, as um, the petitioner argues, the, the calculation of projected disposable income is merely a mechanical multiplication of the current disposable income times 60 or 36, 
then they have no way of allowing the court to take account of a change that has happened just before or after the time of the petition that would inure to the creditor. They can't benefit. say, I object because the six-month period is unrepresentative because of this particular event? They could say that, but it's not clear in the code that that's a basis for, for refusing to confirm a plan. I think they would have to make the argument it, as Does the government have a position on that? I think unless there were bad faith, um, it's not clear how that could be a basis for not confirming a plan. And that was the, the reason that um, my friend on Petitioner's Council um, suggested. But again, it's not clear how that would be bad faith if a debtor proposes a plan that, that commits all of her projected disposable income under the trustee's view of what that number is. It's hard to see how you could say that that was a plan that was proposed in bad faith. So again, I just want to just to respond to the, the argument that the government and respondents' view reads the six-month period totally out of the code. Uh, you can finish the sentence. Okay. <laughs> um, the calculation of a, of a debtor's current disposable income will often be a reliable predictor of her future disposable income. And when that's the case, then a reliable way of projecting is simply multiplying. Thank you, Ms. Harrington. Thank you. Mr. Hamilton, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, uh, first of all, I want to note that the plan is not confirmed in this case. This was an interlocutory appeal. There's uh, an amended order at the BAP level that allows it as an interlocutory appeal, so the debtor still has pre-confirmation options rather than having to rely upon 1329 or something else in the record. Uh, secondly, I want to point out that 1325, as has been suggested by Justice Ginsburg, only incorporates a part of 707B, and the part it doesn't incorporate is the special circumstances on the income side. It only incorporates special circumstances on the expense side. The significance of that is that what's been substituted for special circumstances on the income side is the 10110A formula minus certain expenses from 707B. The certain expenses from 707B are not a wild card. They're IRS standards and certain other specially defined circumstances. The idea that this would allow a phantom car payment, uh, no, we don't think so. There's language in that section that says that the expenses have to be applicable and they have to be actual. And one case recently decided in the Ninth Circuit, the ransom case, says that. You have to look at that language in 707B in order to determine the propriety of the expenses, which has nothing to do with the applicability of the six-month time frame. What the government and what the respondent choose to do here is to basically gut the entire means test based upon one word, and that's projected. And they choose to use a undefined term, projected, over the statutory language that Congress chose to determine what debtors should pay to their creditors, and it's a congressional choice. Uh, and as many commentators have suggested, if there is a remedy here, it is a congressional remedy and not a judicial remedy. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.